There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. The Lord's Prayer was constructed by the genius of God, not only to inform us about the right approach to praying to the Father, but also to provide a comparison, a contrast between the right worldview that we should embrace as followers of Jesus as compared to many of the religions that fill this world. And there's thousands, over 4,000 religions that fill the world. Now, this is the second episode on this subject. And it's a vital subject. So I encourage you, after you listen to this episode, you go back and listen to the previous one. The Lord's Prayer is found in two locations in the Bible. It's found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, a part of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's found in Luke chapter 11, verses 2 through 4, which was actually a response Jesus gave to a request by the disciples And they said, Lord, teach us to pray. So he echoed something he had taught at the very beginning, knowing that repetition is very important. And I don't care how many times you've heard teaching on the Lord's Prayer, you can always glean something new and deep and life-changing as you dig into it with the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, let me quote to you, the Matthew account of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And some versions say, deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Praise God. I feel my spirit filling up, just quoting it. And yet, I don't believe Jesus intended for us just to quote it verbatim. There's nothing wrong with that, unless it's a repetitious thing where you repeat it 10 or 15 or 20 times, as I did when I was a Catholic, a young child, and I was taught that if I quoted it 10 or 15 times, I could somehow uh, help the process of getting my sins washed away. Well, I don't believe that had any relevance whatsoever. Because right before Jesus gave this prayer, he told them not to use vain repetitions like the heathen do. So, even though there's nothing wrong with repeating it word for word, I believe it would be beneficial to use it as a framework, as an outline of prayer, where you insert things that make it creative and spontaneous. For instance, our Father 
who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Well, when I get to that point, I begin to rehearse before God, praising him using his various names like El Elyon, the Most High, and El Shaddai, the Almighty, which means the all-sufficient and all-powerful God. Or Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord my righteousness, is such a powerful thing to use the Lord's Prayer and yet penetrate into the line-by-line, phrase-by-phrase statements with fresh ways of expressing your heart to God. And I encourage you to do that. Now, we began the last time talking about how not to pray in a showy, prideful, pharisaical way or in a repetitious way like Hindus or New Agers do. And we covered the first five points, the importance of the word our, the revelation of God's status as the Father, the relevance of God's location being in heaven, the importance of the name, not just a name for God, but the name for God. And number five, the correct understanding of the kingdom of God. That's all on episode one. Now we're going to take up where we left off. Your kingdom come and the next statement, your will be done. You ought to repeat that with me and just say, oh, Father, your will be done in my life. Now, how does that compare to other religions? It's a very simple statement, and for a Christian, a very common statement, and mindless to a certain degree. By mindless, I mean we don't have to search our hearts to come up with that statement, that desire, because it's our passion to follow his will. He said, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. And so part of being a Christian is being sensitive to the leadership of the Spirit of God. However, how does that compare to other religions? In the Baha'i faith, and incidentally, Baha'i is an offshoot of the Islamic faith, the Muslim faith, and uh, they would not necessarily call themselves an offshoot of Islam because they feel like their religion came by revelation. But I cover the Baha'i faith very in-depth, in great detail, in my book, In Search of the True Light. I urge you to get this book. It's available as an e-book, or you can order a physical copy on shreveministries.org. But it compares over 20 religions, including some you're very unfamiliar with, like the Baha'i faith. And it took five years to compile that book, really a lifetime because I've studied comparative religions for over 50 years. And so all of that knowledge is contained in 336 pages in that book. But see, because Baha'i is an offshoot of Islam, it's generally believed among them that God cannot be known or experienced personally. See, Allah is too distanced from man for any kind of personal father-son, father-daughter relationship to take place. In fact, in Islam, there are 99 names for God and not one of them is father. And so even though they would emphasize the will of God in a general sense to be found in the Quran and their other sacred writings, to know the will of God in a personal, individual, unique sense 
is just not something they expect or believe. In Buddhism and Jainism, there is no concept of a supreme being, no concept of a creator God. That's Jainism and Buddhism. And, and so no personal God exists in those worldviews to be approached in order to discover his will, in order to know and follow his will. So that's a prayer that would never be prayed by a Buddhist or a Jainist. And in Islam, <clears throat> the very emphasis, and I think this is important, is doing God's will because the very word Islam means submission. And so that's a primary facet of that belief system, to do the will of Allah, to do the will of the Godhead as they conceive it to be. And of course, in Islam, God is absolutely one. And Jesus was just a prophet, not the son of God, and certainly not God manifested in the flesh. And so you may say, well, there's a lot of similarity then between Christianity and Islam because the very name Islam means submission, and the implication is submission to the will of God. So we must be similar. However, submission to God in Islam involves things that no Christian would ever uh, say is a necessary step in being right with God. For instance, you've got the five pillars of Islam that a Muslim must adhere to in order to be saved. And none of them would be found in a Christian worldview. Not one. Number one is Shahada, which is the daily confession of faith, that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Number two is Salat, which is prayer toward Mecca five times a day. I wish Christians prayed that much. In fact, the Bible said pray without ceasing. Number three is Ramadan, the month of fasting. Number four is Zakat, which is 2.5% of your money being given to charity. Now, don't decide to become a Muslim because you don't have to give 10% anymore. And you can reduce that down to 2.5%. Of course, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. And then number five is Hajj, which is the pilgrimage to Mecca that every Muslim must take, if at all possible, during their lifetime. So that's the will of God in Islam, plus all the other commandments contained in the Quran, many of which we would fully disagree with, and some of which we would agree with, because there are some similarities between different religions. Now, what about the New Age or New Age spirituality? How does that line up with your will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done in the Lord's Prayer? Well, actually, the New Age is a mindset that celebrates something called the law of attraction. And the law of attraction is the exact opposite, actually, of the biblical exhortation to pray your will be done because the law of attraction says that if you maintain a certain thought, a certain confession, certain words in your mind or in your speech concerning certain things you want in life, 
a spouse, a new job, a new car, a new house, usually it's focused on material things, then the universe will grant you your wishes. So it's not about you doing God's will. It's about the universe doing your will. So it's completely opposite. And modern Christianity, I think, sometimes has lost its moorings because quite often you find certain individuals in the body of Christ who don't really want to live a life of discipleship, but they want all the benefits. And so it's, again, it's almost like the new age. It's not my emphasis being your will be done. And I die to self and father, if it be possible, let the cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis once again is God, I want you to do my will. I want you to move in my life, which is very Ptolemaic in nature. What do I mean by that? Ptolemaic refers back to Ptolemy's teaching that the earth was the center of the solar system. He was a second century geographer and astronomer, and he taught that the sun revolved around the earth. A thousand years later, approximately, Copernicus came along and said, no, the the solar system is heliocentric, meaning the sun is at the center and the earth revolves around the sun. Well, a number of years ago, God spoke to me that the doctrine in the church was shifting towards something very Ptolemaic in nature, where we thought God revolved around doing our will when the correct view should be us going around the sun of righteousness and doing his will. Think about that. Because Jesus did say in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Now, we've all missed the will of God in some way, either in a small way or a great way or a number of ways. So does that disqualify us when it comes to heaven? No, I think that statement in Matthew 7, 21 was primarily talking about lining our lives up with the Word of God. And of course, if you miss the will of God at some point in your life, you can be forgiven and restored. But how do you know the will of God? Two ways, by the written Word, Genesis to Revelation, and of course, the New Testament qualifies many things in the Old Testament. You know the will of God on a foundational level by knowing His Word. You know my will by knowing my words. If I were to say, honey, please bring me a glass of water. My wife is sitting on the other side of the camera. She takes care of of doing these podcasts for me. Then she would know my will if she heard my word. And in like manner, the will of God is known by the living word, the rhema word, not just the logos, the written word, but the rhema word, because if you are one of his sheep, He's going to speak to you personally by visions or dreams or audible voices or signs. There's many different ways God chooses to speak to us. And then he included the statement, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this has been confused very much, quite a bit, with a new age phrase that you hear quite often in that particular worldview, in that particular mindset, faith system, system of belief, you hear quite often New Agers saying, as above, so below. 
And it's so integrated into Christian thinking, too, that sometimes you'll hear that as a substitute for on earth as it is in heaven. And yet, there is a subtle difference in meaning and a very important difference in meaning. Because for a New Ager to say that, it means something quite different than a Christian saying that. In fact, in the Message Bible, you have the phrase, as above, so below, instead of on earth as it is in heaven. So what is the difference between the two? On one level, it refers to astrology because most New Agers embrace a belief in astrology. And astrology teaches that the movements in the heaven, and I'm talking about the first heaven, the cosmos, the stars, the universe filled with hundreds of millions of galaxies and planets and star systems and asteroids and heavenly bodies, that all of that controls us that when a child is born, the formation of stars in the heaven controls the character of the child, whether or not that child is assertive or backward, whether or not that child is loving or harsh, whether or not that child is prideful and arrogant or humble. All, all these things can be determined, including destiny and purpose and ultimate uh, abilities and and ultimate potential in the stars. And so to say as above, so beneath would be a submission to the astronomical uh, belief that these things control you. And yet, when you really dig into astronomy, it's impossible that it could ever be true because it was based on a Ptolemaic view of the solar system, that the sun revolved around the earth and the sun passes through 12 houses in its circuit around the earth. Well, if the basis of astrology is wrong, everything built on that system of belief is wrong. So as above, so below implies control over this realm by that realm however you interpret it. And it could be interpreted as um, an admission that the whole universe is really one essential substance. That's a doctrine called monism, that uh, it appears to be different. The material world appears to be different, but in Hinduism, they call it maya. That's an illusion because really everything physical is a manifestation of spirit and so we are all one, and we need to function in perfect harmony with the Godhead, which is an impersonal, and I did say impersonal, not a father, but an impersonal cosmic energy, a life force, a level of consciousness. So to say, as above, so below, is a way of saying, I admit we are all God in manifestation, which is absolutely the opposite of the truth. Now, about half of the Hindu uh, adherence, uh, adherence to Hinduism, believe in that. And then others have a dualistic point of view, which means they believe that the earth is real, the material world is real, it's not an illusion, and we can have a relationship with God. And so there is a difference among Hindus. But for me to say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is not implying 
control of this world from heaven, but submission in this world to heaven and to God's authority. It's a willful, worshipful surrender of my heart to him. So there is a subtle difference in interpretation between the two. And once we are saved, heaven and earth merge in our lives, right? Because we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. We're lifted from an earthly sphere of bondage and an earthly sphere of fear and depression and guilt and all the things that bind us up mentally and emotionally. And we're lifted up to a place where we're one with the heavenly King of kings and Lord of lords. And we learn how to reign with him. So to say on earth as it is in heaven is also to say, Lord, let me be a partaker of the heavenly calling. Let me be one who lives a life that is truly heaven on earth. And I believe you can have that. A lot of people, when I witness to them, say, man, I don't care about going to hell. I'm already in hell. I'm going through hell on earth. And I tell them, well, if you can go through hell on earth, you can also go through heaven on earth. It works both ways. And then this statement, give us this day our daily bread. Once again, in Buddhism and Jainism, there's no belief in a supreme being who would care for his people in such a personal and detailed way. So you would never find a Buddhist or a Jainist asking God to supply their next meal or physical things they need in life. And about 50% of Hindus believe that Brahman is ultimate reality, which again is that impersonal force that you do not pray to, but you meditate on. That's a spark of divinity within every human being, and that divinity needs to be awakened in you, but that's not a force that would care about you on a personal level or respond to you about personal things. In deism, which some of our founding fathers embraced, and I believe some have been blamed with believing in deism, who actually believed in a personal relationship with a personal God who was personally involved in their lives. So I'm not getting into a discussion of who was a deist, but in that worldview, God created the universe, but then he withdrew himself to let it proceed and evolve on its own. And so he doesn't involve himself in the affairs of men. Not my God. My God's very involved. In fact, Jesus said, consider the lilies. Behold the sparrows. Your heavenly Father takes care of them. Of how much more value are you? And if he feeds the sparrows and clothes the lilies, He's going to take care of you. Well, what does that mean, though? God doesn't actually come down in a bodily form and hold seeds in his hand in order for sparrows to come and perch on his hand and eat. He doesn't do it directly. He does it indirectly. He provides an environment, nature, that produces things like seeds that are the proper nourishment for birds. And so he remains hidden. Sometimes he's not known. Sometimes things evolve in your life where your personal needs are met. And it's not a thunderclap from heaven where God says, I supplied that new job. But he orchestrated it behind the scenes. Because Isaiah 45, 15 says, he's verily a God 
who hides himself. And there's plenty of biblical examples where God took care of his people in this personal kind of way. Give us this day our daily bread. What about Elijah being fed by the ravens in the wilderness? What about Jesus multiplying the loaves and fishes for the crowd of people that gathered to hear him preach? That was God on earth doing this very thing. And if he can do it on earth, he can do it from heaven, right? I agree. All right, he said also in Matthew 6, 7, and 8, he said, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. You can't manipulate and control God by repetitious prayer. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. But this is the verse I wanted to get to. He said, therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Isn't that a nice thought? That he's actually so focused on you, he's taken care of you in areas you haven't even asked him about yet. Like, like John and Mary standing at the foot of the cross. I'm sure Mary wasn't even concerned about where she would stay or who would take care of her. She was just focused on the suffering of her son. And yet in the midst of his agony, paying the price of redemption for the whole human race, he took time to say, John, behold your mother, and Mary, behold your son, to make sure she was taken care of after he left. Isn't that just like Jesus? He's going to make sure that you're taken care of. So when you pray that prayer, give us this day our daily bread, expand it to cover all the physical needs of your life and your family's lives. All right, now we get to a really intense one. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He emphasizes so much that after the Luke version of the Lord's Prayer, he he went into an exhortation that if we do not forgive those who have wronged us, our Heavenly Father cannot forgive us. And to forgive doesn't mean to accept someone's behavior, nor does it mean to be restored to relationship. It, it frees you up more than it frees that person up. Why does Jesus refer to it as debts? Because sins are either against God or against fellow human beings. And if we hurt fellow human beings or if we disobey God, we incur a debt. If I knowingly have a hostile attitude towards someone else, I rob them of joy. I rob that person of peace. I rob that person of a sense of well-being and throw them into confusion or fear or anger or what have you. Who knows? Uh, uh, lots of different scenarios. But I rob them of the calmness and the peace and the contentment they can have in God. Well, then I owe them a debt. I owe back to them that peace, that contentment, that joy that I rob them of. Whatever is stolen must be returned. That's a law from the Old Testament. So I can't pay off that debt. I've harmed people. You've harmed people with your attitude, even since you've been saved. And the debt's too great for us to ever pay back. But there's a song that says, he paid a debt he did not owe, and I owed a debt I could not pay. Thank God only Christians have a basis for the belief that they are forgiven. Other religious worldviews 
do ask to be forgiven. They hope to be forgiven. But, uh, for instance, in Islam, Muhammad confessed and confided in some of those that were following his worldview that he did not know what was going to happen to him. He didn't know if he was forgiven or not. He didn't know if he would occupy paradise or not because you don't have that kind of assurance in Islam like you do in Christianity because we have promises. There are guidelines to give a Muslim confidence that most likely he's obtained forgiveness, but no one can know for sure. However, in Christianity, we can know for sure. In Hinduism, ultimate reality is not a personal God to whom we are accountable. Among those who believe in Brahman being ultimate reality, some other Hindus may believe in a personal God as ultimate reality, like Krishna or Vishnu or Shiva, and they're devoted to that individual God, and that changes the scenario slightly. But in among those who believe that Brahman, an impersonal life force, is ultimate reality, there's no confidence that sin can be forgiven because you cannot appeal to Brahman. You can't say, oh, forgive my sin because Brahman doesn't respond. You're locked into this inexorable law called karma. And there are certain means and things you can do, ritual ceremonies you can do to try and get rid of excessive karma, like washing in the river Ganges. But for the most part, you've got to pay off all your karmic debt. So even in Hinduism, they use the word debt for errors in your life. But that's a debt they have to pay off in future lives. In fact, the guru I studied under back in 1970, before I became a Christian, taught us that because of karmic debt, it may take two or three lifetimes of being totally devoted to yogic disciplines before we could ever hope to be released from the cycle of rebirths. Mm. I'm so glad I'm a Christian <laughs> and I know now the way to find forgiveness. In Jainism, they don't seek forgiveness from God because as I've mentioned, there's no supreme being in Jainism. However, they believe strongly in something called ahimsa, which is nonviolence. And there's a certain festival every year, Pariyushana, where they emphasize for eight days, sometimes for 10 days, differing groups follow it uh, a different number of days. They emphasize forgiveness and they seek forgiveness from other people. They seek to receive forgiveness and to give it. They also strangely seek forgiveness, and I'm not sure exactly how they do it, from plants and animals that they've harmed. Because Janus are very passionate about this thing called nonviolence, ahimsa, A-H-I-M-S-A. It's the symbol of their religion, the open palm with ahimsa written in the middle of the palm. And uh, I'm not sure how they accomplish that. But if they've trampled on insects, unknowingly they feel like they need forgiveness from that insect whose life was taken away from it. Buddhists see forgiveness as a very important method, along with meditation, of achieving inner peace. 
and right thinking, but it has nothing to do with a relationship with God. It's just all about finding a place of no suffering, because that was Buddha's emphasis, how to escape suffering. And if you feel unforgiveness toward other people, or if you've done some harm to them and they have not yet forgiven you, it can create turmoil in your mind. And to achieve nirvana, you have to get rid of that. So forgiveness is just a path to inner peace. And then I've got to include the Course of Miracles, because a Course of Miracles is a fundamental, quote-unquote, sacred book in New Age spirituality. And a lot of people teach it who are New Agers. In fact, Marianne Williamson, who ran as a hopeful candidate for president, she teaches in Norman Vincent Peale's church in New York every week on this book. A Course in Miracles. She's a very avid New Ager. And in that book, the writer, Helen Shookman, said this, the crucifixion had no part in the atonement. Instead, when we forgive ourselves, did you hear what I just said? The crucifixion, she taught, had no part in the atonement. Instead, when we forgive ourselves or when we receive forgiveness from fellow human beings, we extend forgiveness to others or we're participating in and perpetuating the atonement ourselves. And then I continue the quote now. Forgiveness is for God and toward God as an act of worship. See, forgiveness is for God and toward God, but not of him. Helen Schuchman said, it is impossible to think of anything God created that could need forgiveness. Forgiveness then is an illusion, a kind of happy fiction, a way in which the unknowing bridged the gap between their perception and the truth. Horrible. That's terrible. And yet some Christians think they can read A Course in Miracles and it doesn't damage their faith in any way. But it's all horizontal. Forgiveness is important toward others, receiving it from them, but you don't appeal to God to forgive you. Well, that's absolutely an untruth. Forgiveness is free. When I was raised Catholic, we were taught after the confessional, after we confessed our sins to the priest, to go to the altar and pray, 10 Our Fathers, 5 Hail Marys, 10 Glory Be to God, and somehow we could earn forgiveness. If you can earn forgiveness, Jesus went to the cross in vain. It is a free gift of God. And 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that phrase, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors, is absolutely a revelation of the nature of the Christian worldview. And I will continue in the next episode on the final phrases in the Lord's Prayer. And I urge you to order the book in search of the true light so you can know other religions better. And also, I'm going to put a link on my Facebook page today for this book, Jesus and Muhammad. If you want to know more about Islam, this is written by Mark Gabriel, a former Muslim himself. Very powerful book. And don't forget to go to the truelight.net and download your free copy of my story, my conversion story, The Highest Adventure Encountering God. 
Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.